Well, thank you, Pastor Eric. Reminds me of a joke. How do you know when someone's a fighter pilot? They'll tell you, exactly. <laughs> well, I am not Corey, and I do apologize for all of you who were expecting Corey here this morning. And uh, I have been hiding out in the back of the church for quite a while now. And uh, don't be like me, because if you hide out, God will always find you. He will, he will have you do the things that he purposes in your life. And you could find yourself up here. And if you're an introvert like I am, it's, it's not necessarily a great thing. So um, make sure you serve the Lord your heart, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So hopefully, <clears throat> I'll be here uh, this Sunday and next. And hopefully, with God's grace and mercy, um, Corey will still have a church to come back to when... Uh, <laughs> when he gets done with his vacation sabbatical. <laughs> now, I know you're used to Corey's style of teaching, verse by verse, line by line. I love it, and uh, it's how I love to teach also. But obviously, with only two Sundays to share, we're going to have to do a topical type of teaching this morning. So um, we're going to do that, and I'm going to go home and repent afterwards because uh, I, I don't like doing that. But uh, seriously, what I'd like to share with you this morning, what uh, the Lord has put on my heart, is how we as Christians should view what's been going on in our culture, in our country around us these past couple of years. Because I don't know what it is, but things seem to be accelerating at a pace that it's just almost incomprehensible. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is so many of friends, our neighbors, even our family, becoming increasingly withdrawn and angry and even outright hostile, hostile towards one another. And they seem to be screaming about things that a lot of times we don't understand why they're, why they're this way. And so what I want to do is look at the events that that we're living through, through a biblical perspective. I want to get a little, little. Uh, I can't find the word, so I won't say it. <laughs> but if you're like me, you've been astonished by what's going on. <clears throat> it's amazing. We see, we see our leaders, the politicians, saying things that we can't believe. We see business leaders making business policies that seem to make no sense and alienating their customers. Disney comes to mind. Um, we see our friends and neighbors saying things and believing things that, that we have a very hard time as Christians understanding how they could possibly believe it. As a matter of fact, a lot of times it seems as if they've lost all sense of reality. It's just uh, kind of understandable. For example, right now we're told by so many people that we're in a climate emergency. Now, those of you that are as old as I am know that back in the 70s, we were going to go into an ice age. But we're in a climate emergency, right? And we got to do something right now. And, you know, I'm not going to go any further into it other than to say that, okay, you could be right. But this we got to do something right now attitude seems to lead to a whole bunch of policies and, and edicts and laws that just don't seem to make any sort of sense. So you kind of wonder about what's going on there. Um, another example, one that just floors me, is that we're told that we can no longer tell 
if a child is male or female at birth. What? Because somehow the bodies that they have, they're just randomly assigned, and it's going to be up to that child as it grows up, I guess you call it an it, to determine whether it's male or female or something else. It just, to us, is kind of unbelievable. I know there's hundreds of examples we could get into, but the point is this. How is it that we, as Christians, how are we to interact with people that seem to be so disconnected from reality? More importantly, more importantly, how do we share the good news of God's love, mercy, and grace with those, these people. Especially when as they look at you as a Christian in their mind, they may not say it, but in their mind a lot of them are accusing you of being homophobic, transphobic, misogynic, and a racist oppressor. All because we believe that the Bible is true and that God sent his son here to be your savior. So how do we share with these people? I've been pondering this question for a while now, and I got some insight this past Easter. A friend of mine, a good friend of mine sent me an essay written by uh, Kathy Keller as Pastor Tim Keller's wife. He's written a lot of books, pretty uh, um, significant pastor in New York. But she, she wrote an essay called Our Faith is Historically Verifiable or It's Nothing. In it, she pointed out what most of you all know, that the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the church at Corinth said, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. In other words, we have a faith that can be, if we have a faith that can be verified historically, then it's true. And brothers and sisters, I contend that our Christian faith is grounded in historical events and facts that are verifiable and true. They're not, it's not based in myths or rumors or made man philosophies, but the events in the Bible really happened and that they're verifiably true. So we have that. But now we have a popular culture that's trying to tell us that we can't determine what's true. There are no universal truths. It's not necessarily true that if you have an XY chromosome, my wife said I said that wrong in the first service, an XY chromosome and the reproductive organs of the male of the species, that you are a male. No, you could be something else in our current way of thinking. Truth in our modern culture doesn't seem to be determined by external realities or physical evidence, archaeological evidence, or even scientific or mathematical proofs. In our contemporary culture, truth is said to be defined by what? The individual. Now there's all sort of logical fallacies with this belief. Because if truth is in fact determined by each individual, how would we know this is true? And if my truth varies from your truth, then that doesn't seem to make any sort of sense. But no, no, let's say it is true. If each individual determines the truth, wouldn't that be, in itself, a universally true thing? Huh. But besides that, how do we have a rational conversation with someone that believes these things? 
A brother was sharing with me between services that his sister, they were talking about something, and she said to him, well, that's your truth. And I was like, how do you, how do you deal with people like that? They seem to be completely illogical and irrational. In a former life, Eric kind of alluded to that life, I would have answered that question by saying, know your enemy. Know your enemy. In order to understand these people, we have to understand where they're coming from. But what we do have to keep in mind, and, and hear me on this, because it's really easy to get this confused. These confused, deluded people are not our enemy. They're not our enemy. We're going to identify our true enemy today as we go through, but they're not it. Now, I've talked entirely too long without us reading the Bible, so if you would please stand as we read our passage. We're going to read from two passages today, John 14 and verse 6, and then we're going to thumb over to the right to 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have your Bibles with you, open your Bibles to John 14, 6, and we'll read one, one simple verse. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start reading in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Father God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you are the same today, yesterday, tomorrow, forevermore, that we can know from you what's true, what's good. We can know, Lord, from your word and from the witness of your Holy Spirit, good from evil, right from wrong, the things that you would have us do, Lord. And Lord, we know that there are so many out there who don't know you. They're perishing for lack of knowledge, Lord. So Lord, as a church, help us to understand how we can share your good news with these people, Lord. Help us to be the ambassadors to the world that you call us to be. We ask all these things for your glory, Jesus. Amen. So the passage in John, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Truth. What does truth mean? Truth means that in reality, in certainty, Jesus was who he said to be, who he claimed to be. We can trust what he taught and said was really trustworthy. It's really real. We can trust in what he says. We can believe what God teaches us in his word. The Christian faith is built upon trust and belief in Jesus. We can take what Jesus said to the bank. Now let me ask you a question. Why is that? Why can we do that? Because he left us with one very significant proof. His death 
and resurrection. As, as a side note, I love seeing God's sovereignty in hand. Because if you do you remember where we left off in Corey's teaching in the Gospel of Luke, we're right at the resurrection story. Now, I had no idea where Corey would be, and I had actually had no idea that he could possibly ask me to teach. But here we are teaching again on a sermon based around Christ's death and resurrection. So God's hand is sovereign. It's always amazing seeing it work. But let's take a look again at 1 Corinthians 15. Now, a skeptic might say, hey, 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 wait, wait a minute, Gary. You, you can't point to this in the Bible. That's, that's all stuff made up by men. This wasn't written until 55 years after, after these events happened or so. That's plenty of time to make up a story, a myth, a legend. Well, let me tell you something. This is kind of an interesting fact. Critical scholars, these are Bible scholars who are skeptical of the Bible, have pointed something out very interesting. Look again at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he goes on to say that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This is a very early creedal statement. What's a creedal statement? A creedal statement is something we say to put very uh, important truths in an orderly way in our mind. So, for instance, it's very sick. Christ died for our sins, accordance with the scriptures. He was buried in accordance with the scriptures. Raised in accordance with the scriptures. It's a creed. And this creed, the critical scholars have determined, probably date to within about 33 to 35 A.D., so one to five years of the crucifixion. Now think about that. This is a very recent event. If you're going to make up a creed like this, and it's false, there's going to be people standing around. You can't say that. He never resurrected. He just, but they couldn't argue with it. Because it happened. It's an interesting thing. But Paul even goes on to say, give us proof that it didn't happen that way. Because as we read on, he said, and then he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve, and then he appeared to five hundred brothers at once, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles, and as last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Don't miss what Paul's saying here. This is really really important stuff, because what's Paul saying here? He's saying, hey, I know what happened. I know that the Romans are expert at crucifixion. If you get nailed to a cross, you're going to die. And I'm, I'm Paul, I'm a rational guy. I know that if you die, you are dead. You're gone, right? Dead men don't come back to life. But Paul says, but he did come back to life. He resurrected. He's alive. And he says, if you don't believe my story, go talk to Peter. Go talk to the 12. Go talk to the 500 others. They'll tell you the same thing I did. Some of these guys walked with him. They talked to him. Some of them even had meals with him. Go check out my story. But Paul goes even further. He's saying, I'm not making this up because I'll tell you what. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. 
In other words, Paul's saying, hey, if I'm lying, if I made all this up, if this is some sort of story, if Christ didn't resurrect, all this religious stuff you guys have been practicing, all this Christianity, it's false. It's futile, vain, pointless, worthless. If you don't believe me, check it out. But he goes on from there. He says, but in fact, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus Christ, in fact, supernaturally rose from the dead. Paul knew that dead men don't rise. Now, people might say, well, maybe all these other people, maybe they wished Christ came back to life. No one in Jewish society at that time expected a Messiah who was going to come and be crucified. They expected a Messiah who would come and rule to, to free them from Roman oppression. But to die the most horrible, wretched death possible, a death that was forbidden to Roman citizens and only given to the lowliest, that doesn't fit with their narrative. If anything, that would have just discouraged them to say, oh my gosh, this was all wrong. But in the very place that Christ was crucified, this is where the faith originated. Isn't that amazing? God works that way. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That resurrection, it's proof. It's proof that Jesus Christ was not of this world. It's proof that he has power over creation. It's proof that we can trust in him and what he says. And what does he say? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because of that, we can believe God's word. We can go all the way back to Genesis 1, where God, God tells us in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. And hey, what do you know? Here we are. Modern day scientists tell us that the entire universe began at a single point, a singularity. Wow. Now they realize what that means, so they got to come up with all these other ideas to avoid the fact that there was a creator. As Ted Koppel said, if there was a big bang, then there was a big banger. But they want to avoid that. We can believe God's word when he says, this is one we need to hold on to these days, God created man in, the, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Whoa, well, who knew we're binary? <laughs> we can trust God when he says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We can trust God at this. We can believe in a supernatural God who has created everything ex nihilo, literally, from nothing. He can turn water to wine. He can heal the sick and raise the dead. We can trust all of this because he's left us ample evidence by nature, through creation, through his word, by his son's death and resurrection. 
And most importantly, brothers and sisters, don't ignore this through the witness of his spirit, his spirit that resides in every one of us. And because of this, we can identify who our real enemy is. And God even warns us of him in scripture, doesn't he? And because we know who this enemy is, we can begin to understand, we can gain some insight into how so many people have so many twisted, warped views of things because our enemy has deceived them. They've believed a liar and they believe his lies. Just like Adam and Eve, they sin because they believe the liar. We know this, this enemy by many names, don't we? The serpent, Satan, the devil. Jesus describes him this way in John 8. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I want you to notice something here. Jesus called him a murderer, not a liar. Why? Well, because lying is sin, right? Amen? And the wages of sin is death. He's a murderer. He distorts the truth. People believe him, and they die because of it. They perish because of it. So on the one hand, we have truth, God, Jesus, the Spirit. And on the other hand, we have lies and deceptions, Satan. So all these crazy ideas that we see today, that there are more than two genders, that men can become pregnant. Please, no. <laughs> that it's... That it's a health issue for a woman to kill a child in her body? That the world is overpopulated and that mankind is a scourge on the face of the earth? All these ideas come from one source, the father of lies. It's nothing new, right? It's nothing new. This goes all the way back in our history to the garden where the father of lies told Eve, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be, what? Like God. There's a promise, knowing good from evil. What happened in that instant? When Eve believed and Adam went along with her, the trust that existed between mankind and God, that bond was broken. And the rest of our history has been filled with people being deceived by the liar Deceived by falsehood. Ever since we believed that our eyes would be open and we would be like God, we, all like sheep, have gone astray. What's the result of it? We all want to be our own masters, right? I want to captain my own ship. I want to pilot my own plane. I had to throw that in there. Um, <laughs> we want to be in control. But the truth is we're not. Incidentally, how does Satan present himself? Is he that ugly red guy with the horns and the tail and the pitchfork? Nah. Paul describes him this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So the devil 
By the way, devil, do you know what that means? It literally means the slanderer. The slanderer, okay? He entices people by promising them things that seem to be good. He says, if you will only do this, then you will be joyful and fulfilled. So he takes all kinds of good causes, things like caring for the environment. I don't think any of us want our environment to be destroyed, do we? He, wants, he takes things like our individual's freedoms. Okay, we, we have that. God's given us those things. But then he'll take and twist them and pervert them into causes and into ideas that are untruthful, that are perverted, they're warped, so that people are deceived. And the result of all this is that people start standing around, especially after the last two years, we, we're all kind of scratching our heads, aren't we? And we're the believers, right? But how many of you trust your doctor 100% now after what's been going on, right? It's really sad. Satan has crept into things like that. Satan wants us to doubt everyone and everything, especially the word. He wants us to to not believe in anyone or anything so that we can all be easily divided and conquered. He wants us to all have our own little truths. Satan's influence, think about it, it's manifested now in a way as never before in history. Something that should be for our good, the internet, look at how people use that. Pervert it and twist it. Who's behind that? Things like our cell phones, they, they can be used for wonderful things, right? But how many times do you go out in public and see a couple sitting together at dinner and are they talking? No. They're both in their little, little cell phone world. They're isolated. They're separated. They're living their own truths. People are being deluded at an ever greater Great. It's, it's really interesting. You know, I'm older than a lot of you in here. And some of you are a little older than me. But you probably remember how things have changed in our culture. From, this is going to sound antiquated, there was a time when people were ashamed to be divorced because it broke God's decree that what he has joined together, let no man break. Now it's commonplace, even in the church, unfortunately. We've gone from people timidly coming out of the closet to having Pride Week, or I was told it's Pride Month now. I mean, my goodness, you know? These things have just been escalating at an ever-quickening uh, pace. We've seen progress from people knowing that they're male or female, to having to question what gender they are and deciding it for themselves. Now, as Pastor Corey said, it's probably been about two months ago, and I really identified with it when he said, said it. It's really easy to get fed up with these people, right? It's really easy to get angry about the state of affairs in our culture, in our country right now. In my flesh, I want to walk up behind some of these people, smack them on the back of the head and say, hey, wake up. Wake up. 
You're believing crazy things. How can you be so deluded? How can you think it's a good thing for a man to dress up as a woman and then go to our libraries and read to our children? How can you believe it's a good thing to indoctrinate our kindergartners on sexuality? It doesn't pass any te uh, logic tests. It doesn't make any sense. But when I calm down, when I pray, when I seek the Holy Spirit and his guidance, then Jesus brings clarity to it. And what did Jesus say about these people? John 8. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. Now, I know that when Jesus said this, he was speaking to a particular group of Jews. But think about this. It was a group of Jews who were Abraham's children. They followed Moses' writings. They believed in their leadership. They believed they were doing the right things according to their Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the scribes. They thought they were worshiping God. And yet they had strayed. They were deceived. They were so deceived that when the Messiah came, they couldn't rec recognize him as their savior. And they crucified him. You think some of these people that we're seeing that kind of infuriate us, could they possibly believe that they're truly doing good? Yeah, unfortunately they can. They've been deluded. They believe a lie. Now, you might be asking me, how, really? How can they really be, be thinking that they're doing good? How can they really believe that there's more than two genders? Turn with me to the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1. We'll start reading from verse 18. Excuse me. <clears throat> For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, Eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. <clears throat> so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Jump on down to verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Wow. 
Wow. So clearly, since Paul wrote this over 2,000 years ago, or nearly 2,000 years ago, this isn't the first time in human history that people have been running around doing things that are depraved and ungodly, is it? But as I said before, this is the first time in history that Satan has been able to infect the minds of people all around the globe, nearly simultaneously, through the internet, through social media, Hollywood, 24-7 news. They've been so influenced and deceived by what's been put out there that most people have just come to the conclusion that it, they, ought, they ought to just do what, what feels good for themselves, right? As long as I'm not hurting someone else, it's okay to do what I want to do. But what sort of belief is that? Isn't that narcissism? What's a narcissist? I love this definition. It's a person who has an excessive interest or admiration of themselves. Boy, I hope no one calls me that. Um, it's easy for fighter pilots to be that way. Um, you saw Top Gun. But what is it? It boils down to this me-first attitude, right? It's selfishness. It's, it's the belief and the idea that all of creation and everybody else is here to serve me, to make me happy. You're all puppets in my little world, in my little truth. And it's a crazy belief. Satan whispers in their ears, hey, if you will just do this, you'll be happy, you'll be fulfilled. But it doesn't make them happy. They're not fulfilled. They can't truly be content. There's no way. Why? Because we read it, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, all these people that are screaming about their pride, their rights, screaming at you to quit driving your cars and trucks because you're killing the planet. All these people who have been deceived by Satan deserve our compassion, mercy, and love. Why? We just read it. Because they're under God's wrath. I looked at 10 different translations of the Bible. Nine of the 10 use that particular word, wrath, to describe God's attitude towards them, his disposition towards them. Now, just because someone's not a believer, I don't believe that they're under God's wrath because I wasn't a believer for a long time. And I knew that the Lord was seeking after me. Okay? So I think wrath is really, really held for those that have shunned God. They deny him. They deny his existence. Or they laugh at him. They mock at him. I think those are the people that are under God's wrath. But what does it mean? What does that word wrath mean? Well, in this instance, it means God's personal, directed indignation and anger towards an individual. Let me repeat that. It's God's directed indignation and anger 
towards an individual. I don't want to feel that. I don't want to know what that feels like. It can't be a good thing. It can't be. And Paul tells us how this wrath is carried out by God giving them over to a debased mind, a warped mind, to do the things that ought not be done. God gave them over. It literally means he handed them over to another. Who has he handed them over to? We have on one hand, truth, God. We have on the other hand, lies, deception, Satan. So we know who they've been handed over to. God's left these people to their own devices, their own means, because they chose to abandon him. So he will take his mercy and grace away from them. He has given them over to the father of lies. Since they've freely chosen to deny him, he's granted their desires, handed them over to Satan's hands. So let me ask you a question. It's an honest question. Do you think there's any way in God's good creation that a person can be truly content, fulfilled, joyful, or happy if God has abandoned them? I don't think so. Think about how you felt before you knew Christ as Lord and Savior. Was your life full of joy? I know, I know some people partied hardy and all that, but were they really happy? No. There was something that drove you into the hands of the Savior. Imagine what it's like not knowing that God's in control, thinking that you're, you've been told you're in control and the world's going crazy around you. Would you feel uncertain, unsettled, unsure? Would you feel you couldn't trust anyone or anything? Be secure or safe anywhere? Isn't it interesting that so many people are so concerned about safety now? Oh, I've got to be safe. Because they don't feel safe. They don't have the spirit with them. Satan wants them to be unsure. He wants them to question everyone and everything. Doesn't want you to trust anyone. Doesn't want you to believe in anything. I love the coexist stickers. Yeah. Believe everything. Same thing as believing nothing. You can't, can't leave here and go any way you want and get home. There's a certain path to get certain places. But Satan wants you to be deceived. And this deception, this abandonment, it leads to a life, I think, of irrationality, deep-seated unhappiness, purposelessness, even a sense of desperation. What happens when people get desperate? They try to fill that void, right? So they'll latch on to causes, trying to make themselves feel good. So I dry, I'm all electric, I've given up fossil fuels, I'm saving the world. Or they'll, they'll pour themselves into their work. I make a lot of money, I'm powerful. They'll become dedicated to becoming famous. Oh, all these people love me. 
Look at how famous I am. They still don't find happiness. They still don't find joy. And what's that ultimately lead to? Satan will say, keep at it more. You just haven't done enough. So you pour into it a little more. You make a little more money. Buy some more houses. You, you get a little more famous. And what's it lead to? Nothing. You're still not joyful. You're still not content or happy. They get angry. They lash out. Oftentimes at God. They deny him even more. God says, fine, I'll leave you to it. What's the result? Paul says they became futile in their thinking. Futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Politics, anyone? <laughs> they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. I mean, this list is horrible, isn't it? It's tragic. It's really sad, and it should really, really break our hearts. These are the souls Jesus cried over when he went into Jerusalem. These are the souls that Jesus is crying over now. And I'll be honest with you, I wish, I wish and pray for myself that I could be one of those people that cries for them also because it's too easy to be irritated by them because they're so irrational. So what do we do, church? What do we do? How do we combat our real enemy? How do we... How do we influence our friends, our neighbors, our family that have been deceived by the father of lies? How do we influence people, some of whom are living under God's wrath? How do you reason with someone who's literally futile in their thinking? How do we relate to these people when oftentimes they will become angry and infuriated at you because as a Christian, in the midst of all this chaos going on, you have a peace that surpasses all understanding. You have a hope and a joy that seems illogical with how crazy things are going. So how do we, how do we relate to these people? How do we tell them that if they simply quit living for themselves and live for Christ and serve others, that they would find joy? Now, I have a lot of training in apologetics, and it's, it's really interesting right now because I almost think my master's in apologetics is worthless right now. Because apologetics really assumes that you can sit down with someone and have a rational discussion with someone and share with them that we can talk about historical facts, archaeology, whatever, whatever you choose to use, creation, and reason from that and come to a conclusion. But when you're dealing with a futile mind, how do you do that? I don't think it works anymore. Satan has destroyed for so many the concept of objective truth. 
of logic. He's destroyed the idea that we can know, that we can know that we know that we know that Jesus Christ was crucified and he resurrected three days later. He's destroyed that for so many. So how do we reach them? There's no easy answer for that. I don't have it. But I know someone who does. And that's where we're going to be going next week. We're going to be going looking at that next week. So if you'd like a hint of where we'll be going next week, your homework could be read John 15 over the week and see where the Lord reveals to you in that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, we freely admit that we don't understand what's going on in our culture right now, in our country. We're bombarded on all sides, Lord, by events and beliefs that, that just seem to be so irrational, so disconnected from reality. And we mourn, Lord. We mourn for people who just seem to be lashing out because they're angry, they're desperate, they're hopeless, because they don't know the truth. They don't know you, Lord. So, Lord, help us. We need you so desperately, Lord God. We don't have the answers, but you do. We don't know how to relate to these people, Lord, but you do. And you give us your spirit, Lord. So, Holy Spirit, please overwhelm us this week. Transform us from the inside out, Lord. Make us be the loving, merciful ambassadors that you call us to be, Lord, to witness to people who need you so desperately. Lord, help us to be good kids and to fulfill the Great Commission. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and it's all for your glory we ask these things. Amen.